My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. I'm Joe Devine, and welcome to Whiteboard Football Extra. A quick note before we get started with today's podcast. The series is now available to listen to on iTunes and SoundCloud, as well as YouTube. If you're listening on YouTube, a link to our iTunes page will be provided in the description. Under manager Leonardo Jardim, Monaco staged a radical shift in their player acquisition policy. From big spending to smart academy investment, a team stocked with youthful talent has now reached the latter stages of this season's Champions League. Today, I'm joined by Alex Stewart to discuss the tactics that have granted Monaco success, along with the environment that has enabled it. Alex, Monaco often use a 4-4-2, which is a system that we're all fairly familiar with as it's dominated the English game you know, for, for a time a few years ago. The option of two strikers is beneficial for obvious reasons, and we've seen it with Leicester recently, um, inspired themselves by Atletico Madrid, another team that, that use a variant of that system. Why aren't we seeing this formation more often? And it, I mean, is it sim- just simply a case of losing out in midfield if you have an additional striker? Yeah, I think it is. And I think that's why often when you see a 4-4-2, even it's almost more of a a 4-4-1-1. It's very important not to lose the midfield battle. And a lot of teams, when you're playing against a side that is playing a 4-2-3-1 or even a 3-5-2, there is clearly a numerical advantage to be had in that central area. So you sacrifice a certain degree of solidity through the centre by putting an additional striker up. Now, what you've seen teams like Leicester doing is having one of those strikers dropping very, very deep um, and sometimes coming almost into a kind of midfield role to link the play. Um, Atleti do the same sort of thing. So I think it's one of those questions where you're asking really does the formation that's written down on paper actually represent the positions that players take up on the field? Um, with Monaco, obviously Mbappe's got a lot of room to drop deep, to push out wide. So while it is nominally a 4-4-2, there's a great deal of fluidity and flexibility in that formation that, that actually means it's, you know, it, it's not clearly definitively a 4-4-2. I suppose with, with Leicester as well, the other example that we just mentioned there, Okazaki acts as more of a supporting striker to Vardy, is that right? Yeah, and Ajoa does the same thing. So, you know, you're looking there at a, a player who is maybe quite fixed in their position and is, is looking to win aerial balls and play it through or, or drop deep. It's, it's not massively dissimilar to, for example, playing someone like Fellaini in the 10 role. Um, and, you know, they're a presence that draws the centre-backs out of position, wins balls, flick-ons, and Obviously, with Vardy's pace, he kind of feeds off that. So, again, four four one one, a little bit more than a four four two. 
I suppose you could you could argue then that um, you know, but back in the back in the day where four four two the full minute formation kind of dominated the Premier League and you know I, I suppose in some cases it still does in in, in the lower leagues that football might have been slightly more end to end and a little bit more attacking as both teams midfields were I suppose more fragile right yeah and I, I think where in the English game you had a much more direct style of football playing up to you know the classic kind of big man little man combination where the the central midfielders um were really there just to kind of win the ball if it happened to fall in that position and shift it out to the wide men or back to the fullbacks who would then launch those long raking passes forwards i i remember seeing it at southampton where um peter crouch would play alongside a smaller striker and and the two central midfielders really were not they weren't playing through balls along the ground very much. It was it was kind of win it in the centre and shift it wide. So in that instance, a kind of slightly throwback, more direct style, 4-4-2 is fine. Nowadays, where teams are a lot more fluid and are looking to play along the ground a lot more, it, it seems that you have to have that extra man in midfield if you're going to prosper. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that because I think as you see formations develop from two strikers to you know drawing it back to three midfielders it seems that a lot of what teams are doing tactically is in an effort to try and negate what the other team is doing and I think you could probably I don't know if this is a winnable argument or not but I think that you could argue that in the last five years or five years or so big games uh, you know big fixtures between two big teams that arguably should be you know the kind of center center points of of the season and Manchester United Man City for example uh, other games like that are slightly more boring because i think you know the midfield is congested both teams are afraid of losing i suppose maybe 10 years ago those games might have been more entertaining but what i have noticed recently is that some of those big fixtures have been a little bit more end to end i'm thinking i'm not sure if you saw it the other day but I watched the second half of the recent El Clasico and I was amazed by how end-to-end that was. And I, obviously it was coming to the end of the game. There was a red card that Im- impacted that, you know, for the last 10 or 20 minutes. So I suppose it, it is slightly different, but it was much more entertaining just from, you know, the point of view of watching football. Um, I suppose you could argue that it, it's entertaining to watch the teams tactically and how they can outperform each other or negate, you know, the other team's attacking options. But I'm not sure if you would agree that it, it's more entertaining to watch those games that are end-to-end yeah I, I think that's probably true and, and I'd say that the the majority of people who watch football probably are watching it for goals rather than a you know an Atletico Madrid defensive masterclass <laughs> you know I'm not sure how many of us tune in to to really admire two solid banks of four rather than exciting goals and exciting attacking play I think also you've got you've got certain managers and Jose Mourinho is the one who most obviously springs to mind here who particularly in big games does seem to set out with a, a kind of a stifling mentality um you know what are the opposition's strengths and how do I negate those so even in a game like uh, Manchester United against Liverpool recently where well not that recently but earlier in the season where um Klopp's team were kind of going still at it hell for leather united was set up just just to shut that down um and if you know if they could get a point that's great if they could get three points that's even better but it wasn't about making their own openings uh it was about uh defending i think in the in the premier league you've got managers i would say particularly pep guardiola jürgen klopp who are um who are both 
attacking, but also are not afraid to switch things around. You've got Conte and Wenger, who seem very much set in terms of what they're doing, and they they don't tend to adapt enormously to what the opposition are up to. And then you've got Mourinho, who who wants to shut it down and and adapt to what the opposition are doing almost exclusively. And that you know where where you've got those big teams managed by people that are doing different stuff, it, it does create that kind of imbalance where games might well have a tendency to to be a, about stifling rather than creativity. Back to Monaco, um, I think what was interesting from the video was that Fabinho's role seemed to be perhaps the most important in the team, maybe alongside the fullbacks. You know in the video that the uh, the two fullbacks push very high and that Fabinho drops when necessary to fill in with the defence. Could, could it be argued that the team almost shifts to a kind of 3-3-4 formation at times when they're attacking? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if not almost a two four four um Fabinho's got that mobility uh and the the tactical awareness to to see when he needs to to drop back and fill in the gap it's not something that that happens all of the time sometimes Monaco is so attacking and they're they're managing to to create those overloads that he actually doesn't need to go back and he can sit more centrally I think he he reminds me of um Esteban Cambiasso in the inter team that we looked at a few videos back under Mourinho in the treble winning season. Cambiasso was again, a very intelligent reader of the game and was able to drop back and fill in when required, uh, when the fullbacks got forward. But, but that doesn't mean they're doing it all of the time. Um, I think it's right. You know, you need to have, when you've got such attacking fullbacks and when a lot of the width is coming from that, you need to have a player in central midfield, who is able to to drop back in either between the two centre backs uh, or in Fabinho's case, I think largely because you know he's a converted right back effectively in, into one of those fullback positions. It just gives a solidity that that otherwise the team might be lacking. They might get exposed on the counter. Staying with Fabinho, as you just mentioned, you know, he's a converted right back. Originally, that's where he played with the team, and you know, now we've. Uh... We've we've seen crossover before between the central midfield role and the fullback role, and perhaps the epitome of this was Pep Guardiola's use of Philip Lahm at Bayern Munich, as Lahm was often asked to cover both positions concurrently. Um, what, what are the benefits of asking fullbacks to uh, to drift into central midfield positions when in possession? Because I note that Guardiola is still trying to do this with City, although perhaps the fullbacks aren't quite of the quality that are required for that system to work. Yeah, I think. What you get, particularly when you've got a deep possession, um, where perhaps it's either from a goal kick or it's been won, you know, in quite quite deep in your defensive third, the centre backs can split quite wide, so uh, possibly right to the edge of the the penalty area behind the line of the the penalty box, and the fullbacks can then come in, and that creates quite a nice um, square of passing options ahead of the goalkeeper. And it means that the goalkeeper doesn't have to boot it long. Um, it also means that the the it's easier to keep possession within a square than it is to try and play it forwards and then have a line in front of that because it's much, much easier to cut off the passing lanes with one or even two forwards. If you've got a square, it's much harder to... Um, uh, to to win the ball back for the opposition, um, I think fullbacks are, are 
such important players in the modern game. This is partly to do with the use of inside forwards. It's partly to do with the the fact that a lot of width now is provided by fullbacks. And it I guess it's quite natural for them to to find themselves in a position that's closer almost to a sort of central midfield or as we talked about before, almost in a kind of two, four something formation with the with the centre backs dropping quite deep. Um, so they're closer to where they need to be. If you look at um, positional maps for a lot of top teams, it, it's really not unusual to see the fullbacks level with or even ahead of the central midfielders um, in terms of their average position in the game. Um, and I think having players like Fabinho or Philippe Lam, who you mentioned, and Pep always refers to him as the most intelligent footballer he played with, someone who's got that versatility, who understands where they need to be, when they need to be there, who can fill in defensively but has the engine to get forward uh, and understands where they are in relation to those other players is is absolutely crucial for a top-level team. I think that's one of the reasons Pep has not necessarily been able to implement his philosophy quite so well as he wanted at, at City because in Sanya and Clichy, you know, the, they're not top-level fullbacks now. Kolarov, he's sort of undenard with whether to to use him at, at left back or left central defence. So he, he, I wouldn't be surprised if City strengthened in that area. You talk about Monaco's conversion rate as well, which is currently twice the uh, regularity of the average in Europe, Europe's top five leagues. It's difficult to account for this, obviously, but if you had to speculate, what might be the reasons for this and how do we account for statistical blips like this, you know, beyond the tactics or the layout of the team? That's a really, really interesting question because that kind of gets to the heart of what you try and say with data and analysing football. Um, One way of looking at it is to say uh, you don't account for it. It it is a blip that there will be, uh, after the end of the season, uh, what what statisticians would call a regression to the mean, um, which is between 9 and 10% conversion rate, uh, you know, historically as an average. Um, and and that's that. And, you know, sometimes players just have a really good streak. Sometimes teams just have a really good streak. One of the longer term things that you would look at to see if it's in some way sustainable is uh, chance creation. So if a team's creating a lot of chances and it's also converting a lot, then obviously it's going to score many many goals that chance conversion rate you would expect to drop but if you can create more chances in the first instance the level of goals scored could still stay the same or at least be quite similar so i would be looking to say if if monaco are going to try and sustain this success don't expect them to have such a high chance conversion rate next season but look to see whether they're creating more and and whether it sort of balances out that way. Um, sometimes teams are just hot. <laughs> sometimes players just get in the right position and score shots that you would not expect them to. Um, sometimes, I guess, there's there's kind of an energy and a verve to what's happening. Uh, it's it's a really really difficult thing to explain. I suppose that's the undying question of of managers, right? How do they create those you know scenarios to to allow that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. You know. Chance creation is sustainable and something that you can grow. Shot conversion is not sustainable 
over anything longer necessarily than a season and not the kind i mean yeah okay you can work at shooting and stuff like that but there are so many <clears throat> variables in whether a, a, a shot is turned into a goal you know the the position the strength of the shot the position of the goalkeeper the position of the defense what else is going on that it's really really hard to work at making that you know setting yourself a goal of i'm going to be a 20 percent converting team for the whole of next season you you just can't do it you're much better off trying to create more chances Okay, let's have a look at some of the user comments on the Monaco video now. Uh, Geminix365 reminds us that Monaco are in the semi-finals of their domestic cup competition. I hope that's still the case by the time this podcast is released. I'm not sure. I haven't checked. Um, but potentially still in the running for an historic treble, which I believe would be the first in France. So that would be something. A number of commenters have also asked us to discuss Monaco's defensive frailties and how they might be hurt by opposition teams. So I thought this might be an interesting um, opportunity to talk about their upcoming game against Juventus in the semi-finals of the Champions League and how they might face up defensively against that team. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, Monaco have invested, I mean, less money than, than they did a couple of seasons ago. But but where they've put the money has not necessarily been, you know, in the kind of the, the core central defensive areas and, and in goal. Um, I've never quite been convinced by Subasic, who's the, the, the first choice goalkeeper, the Croatian international. Uh, Jemison is developing well um, and certainly has a, a good range of passing, which is very helpful for Monaco when they're when they're seeking to transition. Andrea Raghi has been at the club for quite some time. I think he's 31, 32 now. Um, and again, has never really convinced as a kind of top-level uh, centre-back. So I, I would suggest that Monaco's defensive stance is, is going to be by attacking. You know, I, I don't think... They're going to want to try and sit back and and soak up pressure because their game style is not predicated on on doing that. You know they're used to rolling over teams with this incredibly fast, precise attacking football. And I think against Juventus, who let's not forget are a really really good quality team, um, I think they're just going to stick with what they know um, and and try and get at them <laughs> to use a rather old-fashioned expression you know when you've got a, a team that is producing so many goals producing so many chances has that understanding that interplay um kind of down pat it it would seem silly for them to to kind of withdraw and and you know play Bakayoko and Fabinho much deeper than they do usually that kind of thing I I, I can't see them doing that I might be wrong um but I think they would go for it because I think it's probably their best chance. Nimaj Neb something, and I should clarify that something is that person's actual uh, name. I'm not just saying that in in place of a word I can't pronounce. Says, I think that the most precious and exciting man at Monaco is Jardim. He has a truly remarkable ability to adapt his teams, his systems, and his players. Um, and the commenter goes on to say that Jardim knows what to give his players and when which is an interesting point given the club's philosophy with regards to looking after you know, the players and treating them as individuals rather than assets, I think. 
We note at the beginning of the video that Monaco have shifted their player acquisition policy quite drastically in recent years from big spending under a very wealthy owner um, to you know, a revised focus on academy ta- talent as a result of financial fair play infringements. Um, and there's, there's a really interesting piece that was written in The Guardian, at uh, the name of the journalist I have forgotten, but we, we linked the piece in the description of this podcast on YouTube and on iTunes, so if you want to go and read it, you can search for it. I think it's the most recent Monaco thing on there anyway. The journalist sort of charts the history of, of the club and to give us an understanding of, of why their, you know, their new focus on academy talent is actually not so new. It's, it's very interesting, and I wasn't aware of it, but uh, according to the journalist, you know, the reason that Monaco have always focused in some way on academy is uh, as a result of the demography of 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 Monaco. In that, I think there's only you know uh, thirty thousand people who live there. There's you know no you know next to no teams uh, for kids under under nine years old or so. And I think there's a FIFA ruling that uh, professional clubs aren't allowed to approach um, or sign kids under a certain age i think it's 14 or 15 or something so monaco were in a uh, quite difficult position you know from the beginning of their club which was in the 1920s so they've always had to establish a, a very strong scouting network across france perhaps more so than other teams because they haven't got uh, kids playing football in their local area and they don't have those you know domestic leagues to um you know, so it's local kids to kind of choose from um so i am informed now that that whilst it seems that monaco's uh move to um you know funding the academy is a kind of new thing i think it's actually more uh reverting to uh, a system that they were used to before they started spending a lot of money and it's it's quite interesting actually as well they, they talk a lot about how uh jardim and the the youth coach who again whose name i've forgotten treat the players as individuals and they have not only excellent training facilities but they also have uh, excellent support networks in place you know the kids also benefit from the fact that they get to remain in their original environment at home until they're 14 or 15, based on the fact that Monaco can't sign them legally until after then. So I think it's interesting what we're seeing now, a number of players, you know, young players coming through the, the academy who all seem to be very well adjusted, who all seem to enjoy playing with each other, who seem to benefit from that strong support network there and the positive coaching. I know that the head of youth development there was at PSG for 11 years as well. So the club have spent money on their academy and it's obvious that that's something that they want to do going forward. It's clearly working. I know we've talked a little bit about the conversion rates, how sustainable is it? And it'll be interesting to see if some of those players do transfer to other clubs, how how they work out. And Bappe is a the obvious obvious example of a player who, you know, lots of the big clubs in Europe are very interested in. But I wonder Alex if that's you know, perhaps one of the things that we could we could think about as creating the environment for, you know, those statistical blips and those kind of hot streaks that the environmental factors and it reminds me of that, that Nagelsmann quote that we talked about a while back with management being 70% social competence. You know, if Monaco have created this environment in which the players are, are thriving as individuals and socially as well as on the pitch, perhaps that's one of the things that a football club can do to kind of, you know, create the environment that is uh, hopeful of those statistical blips happening. Do you think perhaps that's what's happened? Yeah, I, I think there's, I think there's something to that. Um, I mean, Jardim is is a an interesting guy. He's he's had a a career starting in in Portugal, but he he began management at the age of twenty seven, um, which again, you know, sort of maybe echoes Nagelsmann a little bit. 
um, and seems to have overachieved with smaller clubs uh, and occasionally like at Olympiakos got sacked even though he was doing really really well with them so you know this is this is clearly a young thoughtful manager who's able to get results out of perhaps you know younger players he worked a lot with at, at Porto when he was there um, and teams that are maybe less well resourced um, let, let's not pretend that Monaco are poor by any stretch of the imagination um, they you know they do have less money than PSG but um, building a team and convincing a group of young players to to pull together in a particular kind of style is obviously something that Jardim is good at doing that within a club structure that is predicated on developing those sorts of players um, exactly like you said in that in that article focusing on that um, I think the, the the massive investment of money that led to the signing of people like Hamas Rodriguez was was the blip um, that was as unsustainable as their shot conversion rate probably um, but a lot of this stuff I guess is is what we would call intangibles um, you know you can't you can't measure team spirit. You can't measure confidence. Uh, you can't measure whether players have bought into a philosophy or not. You can only see results and infer from those results that there's something happening in the chemistry of that group of players. Is that where a football manager falls down? Just to take this <laughs> on a tangent, because I think, you know, the players reacted poorly or, or well to this speech and you can gauge team spirit. There's a metric for... There the is. chemistry. Yes, yes. Um, well, I know in, in FM17, they get really grumpy really quickly. So that's, <laughs> that's possibly I fair. think you, you could argue that in the future, perhaps we, we, can, we can track those things. But, you know, the data isn't, isn't obvious to our human eyes, Alex. I think it's, you know, it's like a customer satisfaction survey, isn't it? Unless you sent out anonymized things saying, rate your manager's ability to g you up on a scale of one to ten it would be it would be hard but you know and obviously that the, when players make public pronouncements it's it's quite rare for players to say you know well the manager came in at half time and said something and we all thought he was a bit of an asshole for it, <laughs> it you know players are they're sent out there to say you know we we're all working really hard and i'm i'm pleased for whoever scored and we all just want to keep winning and stuff so it, it, then they're not stupid. They're not going to, you know, reveal stuff that's happening or reveal issues. Uh, and I'm always dubious of what I see in the press about people orchestrating, you know, sort of protests against managers or, or what have you. I think what you can see is when players are attempting stuff that is difficult or are not showing off, but are uh, demonstrating a repertoire of skills that require confidence in order to try and carry off um, and to do so with an understanding that maybe their teammates will cover for them if it doesn't work out or that their teammates will back them to do the thing that they're trying to do and therefore be in the right position to, to receive the ball. On that note, I would mention, I think, the improved performances of Paul Pogba recently. You know, some of the stuff Pogba's been trying and achieving in probably his last sort of five or six games, that to me says there is a player who has settled in and is now confident. Um, and so maybe that's the area that we can look at and sort of tr- 
try to infer from that whether there is some kind of chemistry, whether there is a confidence and a settledness to those players. Um, and then once we've said, yes, we think that is what's happening, then we can look at why that is and, and maybe developing a youth system in that way, um, looking after players' mental welfare as much as their technical and, and physical welfare is very much part of what, what needs to be done at a club like Monaco and is why they're doing so well. Alex, thanks very much. Thank you, Joe.